0: Hello, and welcome to Off Our Next, a podcast about women and the law. I'm your host, Jennifer L. Brinkley, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies at the University of West Florida. My guest today is Mabel Romero, an Assistant Professor at Northern Illinois University College of Law. We will be discussing her article from the Maine Law Review titled, Viewing Access to Justice for Rural Mainers of Color Through a Prosecution Lens. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So your article is really interesting. Um, It made me think about a lot of different aspects of the criminal justice system that um, maybe I hadn't examined before, uh, particularly because I don't have a lot of knowledge about Maine as a state. Um, But I guess what we should probably uh, talk about is this idea of this definition of rurality. So um, you mentioned in your article, there's little literature looking at what prosecutors can proactively do in order to improve their relationships with communities of color in rural areas. So let's start with that definition. What is considered rural in the United States?
1: I mean, that's what's so hard when you even start discussing rurality in the first place, Um, because I think we all have sort of an idea in our heads when we talk about this rural-urban divide as to what that looks like, right? Um, You know, and I think a lot of that is defined for us to some extent through pop cultural and vernacular understandings of morality. Um, I think we've all watched TV and movies that have sort of explored this urban rural divide um, stuff as innocuous as say the Beverly Hillbillies, where you have a rural family um, that goes to um, of course, Beverly Hills and experiences, you know, kind of head on that sort of difference to stuff that's a lot um scarier, I guess, like movies like Deliverance, for example. Right. Um it, 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 you know, those you know, the these sort of define, I think, for us a great deal, you know, what we perceive as this difference between what's rural and what's urban. Um what's hard is really trying to pin down a formalized definition of that. So really what you see is that apart from these sorts of broader understandings that we, as a general populace, have with regard to rurality, um, you know, governments trying to define that have had a really, really tough time. And generally, what you see in common with all these different formalized definitions is that um, they seem to really define rural in the context of what is urban. It's sort of a, a negative definition. Rural rural is just not urban. And it depends on how we go about defining urban. Um, so what you see is the US Census Bureau really defining rural in this sort of negative sense. Um, you know, places are rural if they're not part of an urbanized area. Um, other agencies have defined, you know, rural as you know, looking at a certain density of people by square mile or looking at an urban cluster and seeing how many people there might be. Um, For example, I believe the USDA looks at, you know, classifying everything as being metro or non-metro and non-metro areas being, you know, divided into micropolitan areas. And you look at whether there's a cluster of 10,000 people to, you know, almost 50,000 people. Um, So, you know, a lot of these definitions are, are kind of all over the place, which makes studying morality a little bit difficult in that sense.
0: Yeah. And and in your paper, you know, you discuss that stereotype of kind of this white rural community member and how, um, you know, pop culture kind of um, uh, gives us that. But what I was shocked reading in your paper was that 15 percent of rural Americans are people of color and um you just you don 't see that why why is that not something represented in popular culture
1: and what 's sort of interesting to you right now is that i 'm working on another another paper in progress, sort of taking the same analysis I did in this paper and looking at things in a more of a nationwide scope and even since this paper came out last year and I was working at the most recent numbers that were available, what we see now is that it 's now twenty percent. Of rural Americans are people of color, so this number is exploding, and I do think that you know that's a good question. Why do we ignore this? And I think it's I think it's actually convenient to ignore um, sort of the fact that those d- demographics are changing. It's a lot easier to just presume that the rural reaches of the United States are generally white. They're all very conservative. They're elderly. And I think a lot of people, if they keep believing that, find it a lot easier to, in a sense, stereotype it and therefore write it off, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I think that's really unfortunate. And they are missing a lot of what is sort of nuanced and a lot of what is complicated about rural communities out there.
0: Yeah, and I was reminded reading um, this about and I had completely forgotten it, blocked it from my memory, about uh, Maine's governor, Governor LePage's comments. Um, He was the governor of Maine until 2019. Um, But those comments he made in 2016 about people of color, I had just completely blocked. it. I mean, I remember it. I remember the outrage surrounding those comments, um, completely blocked it out. I guess other things have <laughs> been going on. Um, but could you maybe remind the listeners what he said about people of color in Maine, and maybe how that fed into kind of these stereotypes we think about uh, of race in rural areas? Oh, gosh.
1: Um, oh, so let me preface this by, by sort of telling a story as to how I got involved in even writing this paper about Maine in the first place. Okay, because that was going to be one of my next questions. (laughs) And then this will kind of lead me into how I went about focusing on this topic. So a friend of mine um, currently at the University of Maine, Taya Johnson, was putting together this um, law and morality sort of symposium with her students and reached out to me um, because she knew that I wrote about rurality and honestly I did not know a thing about the state of Maine before being asked about this and you know I went out there just to kind of google around see what I could find about Maine and sort of current issues And I sort of stumbled into a lot of these statements that Governor LePage made, excuse me. Um, And these statements are rather inflammatory. So those of you who are listening in, please recall that I am quoting someone here um, and that these are certainly not my views or those of the podcast I know. Um, (laughs) So this is in August of 2016. And Governor LePage was then talking about... um, Issues with regard to um, the sort of opioid epidemic that's been hitting Maine just as much as um, lots of other um, rural reaches of the country. Um, But he was blaming it on, he said, guys by the name of D Money, Smoothie, and Shifty, um, saying that they were coming up to Maine from places like Connecticut and New York, and that when they come up, they would sell heroin, and that half the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave, um, which is just absurd. And when he was asked to explain those remarks further, he just dug himself further into a hole. Um, He had a press conference, he showed up with a binder, he said this binder collected all of the drug arrests in the state from I don't know what time period. Um, I'm not sure that he actually specified. But he said that, look, you know, 90% or 90 plus percent of these pictures in my book and it's a three ring binder are black and hispanic people and let me tell you something black people come up the highway and they kill mainers you ought to look into that um Yeah. Um, So I, I, you know, I read that and I was like, okay, now I found my topic. Let's talk about how, um, you know, people of color, especially rural people of color in Maine are being treated, um, how they're being ignored, and how they're being really even denigrated by people in government who are supposedly representing them. Um, So that gave me a topic pretty quickly.
0: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I mean, it it was an invitation and definitely you jumped all over (laughs) over that. (laughs) Um, You also mentioned that Maine and West Virginia share similar traits in that they're the only states where deaths outpace births. So that just made me wonder, and and maybe you have no plans for this, but do you think that you will be examining these kind of prosecutorial efforts in West Virginia in future research? Or or are you going to stick with Maine?
1: I think what I'd like to do is maybe offer a more broad sort of nationwide perspective and then see if there are particular states that might be interesting to focus in on like West Virginia. And I think perhaps looking at that topic in a more sort of broad spectrum will Help me be able to approach the folks that I need to in other states saying, look, I'm looking at this from a national level, but now let's focus on your state. Um, This was a really interesting opportunity. I had to go and present this work in particular because it was, you know, I was invited to. Um to a ton of main practitioners, the main, you know, state Supreme Court and everything. I don't necessarily expect that to fall in my lap with a bunch of other states. <laughs> you know, so I, I figure, okay, I better like look at something a bit more nationwide, show people why this sort of analysis is really important, and maybe focus on places like West Virginia afterward.
0: Now, prior to becoming a, a law professor, were you, did you serve as a prosecutor?
1: I did actually. I was a prosecutor, well, full time prosecutor for three years, and then a part time prosecutor for another five.
0: Okay, so you're familiar with the day in and day out, and um, you know, uh, kind of the the requirement you talk about in your paper as well for prosecutors, you know, to, to seek justice, and um, you talk about. This access to justice and really how prosecutors can have a very specific, defined role in making efforts at improving access to justice for uh, uh, people of color in rural areas. Why do you think prosecutors are best situated to kind of fill that role?
1: Well, I think, you know, prosecutors are best situated as opposed to, say, defense attorneys to really take a lot of leadership in that role, given that you know, even if you look at the ABA standards um, that govern prosecution, um, they they are charged with doing justice. They are supposed to seek justice. It's part of their job. I, I've been defense counsel before too, and you know, when you're defense counsel, your only obligation is to your client, and that's it. And that takes up a lot a lot of your effort. Um, and you know, you you shouldn't have your loyalties divided in any sort of way when you're representing your singular client. However, when you're a prosecutor. You know, if you're an elected prosecutor, uh, along with their sort of line prosecutors that serve under them, um, or even if you've been hired on by contract or something, um, what you're doing is representing the people in a particular jurisdiction, not one, you know, singular human client, um, but, you know, a constituency. And you're trying to do the best that you can for all of them, be those, you know, the rich, poor, white, people of color. Um, so I think that the, the way that the prosecution job is set up in the first place really positions the prosecutor to be in the best position to look at those issues in particular. Um, you know, seeking justice is really, um, it, it really should be the crux of what the prosecutor does, not necessarily um seeking convictions, not necessarily seeking jail time, it's seeking justice. Um, So I think that's why they are best positioned that way.
0: Yeah, I'm a former prosecutor as well. And I remember going to, it may have been a training in um, Columbia, South Carolina, I don't don't remember, but it it stuck with me when they said, you know, prosecutors are the most powerful individual in the courtroom, which, you know, a lot of judges probably don't like to hear that. Uh, But because (laughs) of, you know, their unique um, requirements. And because of that idea of seeking justice and, you know, if they don't have that probable cause, they need to dismiss the case. And, um, you know, all of these really important qualities that only the prosecutor holds. Um, And so I was reminded of that when, uh, when reading your paper and, and the importance of that, the great responsibility that a prosecutor has, and can have in equalizing that access to justice.
1: So was that training at the NDAA then in Columbia, yes, South Carolina? Okay. I'm pretty okay, sure okay. I
0: heard that. Yeah. Have you been there?
1: Um, I, I always missed out on the chance to go, oh, so I'm rather jealous. It must've been a really interesting, interesting it was, session.
0: It was a very intense week, but yes, it was a great, it, it, it I remember it all as a blur <laughs> because it was, uh, was quite so intense, but I remember hearing that and it just, it, it just stuck with me. Um, Absolutely. And, it, and really, um, I left there with a greater sense of that responsibility of, you know, really wanting to make sure that I was seeking justice, that I was trying my best, at least in my courtroom to kind of, um, uh, well, like you say, greater equalize that access to justice for everybody that, that came before our our judge. So, um, so it was a great training. Yeah. One that I would certainly, certainly recommend. Fantastic. That's great. Um, You also mentioned something, and I guess I don't know why I was shocked by this. Um, I don't think I really should have been. But you mentioned a study by the Women Donors Network, um, I think from a 2015 um, uh, article or or study there, that found that 95 percent of elected prosecutors in the United States are white. Um, Why is that? fact, somewhat troubling <laughs> for uh, you know constituents and voters, community members. Why is that a troubling statistic?
1: I mean, you would hope to some extent that the composition of prosecutors would be a bit more reflective of the composition of, you know, a community or society generally. So, you know, the, the fact that 95% of elected prosecutors in the U.S. are white um, is really, it, it, it really does not reflect what our country looks like whatsoever. And we're talking about places that have elected prosecutors. These are usually communities that are a little bit larger, um, you know, are able to afford prosecutorial election rather than putting out their prosecutor jobs, up, you know, putting them up for bid or anything like that. So usually these are in uh, more urban centers, which are also usually a bit more diverse as well. So there's a a large gap there, and I'm also really troubled by the gap with regard to how few women prosecutors there are who are elected. Um, You know, 79% of those prosecutors um, not are white men. So there aren't many women who end up being the elected DA or the head county attorney in this country whatsoever. And I feel that you know when you see that difference, you're you know a lot of a lot of experience that comes from being a woman, a lot of experience that comes from being a person of color, a lot of sort of essential and unique viewpoints that you gain through those sorts of lived experiences don't end up making it um, into heading up a prosecutor's office. And I think having more of that would be incredibly value, valuable in directing how an office really prioritizes its resources, who it prosecutes, what it prosecutes. Um, so that difference is really troubling because of that lack.
0: Yeah, representation matters, and it certainly matters at 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 that level as well. Um, you talked about a survey that had been sent out by the main ACLU uh, to district attorney candidates, and one respondent um, answered that the Cumberland County District Attorney's Office, we do not base prosecution on race in any way, shape or form. Tracking such information would be unnecessary. And that really what that kind of triggered in my mind is this idea of when people say, oh, well, you know, I'm colorblind. Um, And so what that got me thinking is, you know, when a prosecutor says something like that, like tracking that information, is not necessary? It's not important. Um, You know, our office is colorblind and the way that we prosecute offenses. What does that really mean? Or or what does that say um, to the people that they are, uh, you know, if they're elected, that they're representing?
1: I found um, this statement from, you know, the Cumberland County um, District Attorney. His name is Jonathan Sarbeck. Um, Really galling, frankly, um, saying that, look, tracking this information is unnecessary if there's evidence that prosecutors at Cumberland County are acting in a fashion that, you know, bases prosecutorial decisions on race, then this issue might need to be revisited. Uh, You know, I found it galling in that it really communicates to communities of color that, you know, the the DA really doesn't care about whether these issues exist. And it's also really galling in the sort of lack of logic that underlies a statement. You know, if, if for some reason, I'm not sure how he was thinking that he'd ever collect evidence or see evidence if he doesn't collect numbers whatsoever. How is this going to become evident to him without doing so? Um, So, you know, it it sends out a lot of incredibly negative messages, I think, to um, communities of color and people of color, particularly in his county, in Cumberland County, Maine, um, that look, no one really cares about this. It, it it doesn't even raise a blip in our radar. We're not going to devote any resources whatsoever to seeing whether there's anything discriminatory going on in the way that prosecutors function in Cumberland County. We won't even accept help from outside sources. Um, so you know, it has nothing even to do with a lack of resources. We just don't care. And. That's incredibly upsetting. And, you know, I imagine that for those voters of color in Cumberland County, um, that would be really disheartening.
0: Sure. And then you move on to say say that given that prosecutors enjoy more power and discretion than any other actor in the criminal justice system, which kind of goes along with what I mentioned picking up at that training, um, prosecutors should bear the brunt of the remedial responsibility to eliminate racism in the criminal process, even though inappropriate or illegal considerations of race may occur at the arrest date, often before prosecutorial participation in the process. So um, again, reinforcing that notion that prosecutors, you are in this unique position and you really have this responsibility um, to not only eliminate it, but as opposed to what uh, the Cumberland County District Attorney, uh, uh, Mr. Sarbeck, said, um, excuse me, was, uh, you know, we don't even need to track it. Well, of course you do. Of course, this is an important thing, Um, especially also when you're talking about the numbers of people of color in rural uh, communities um, already raising from 15 to
1: 20%. Exactly. This number is exploding. And to just Continue to ignore those communities, I think, is really—it's not only is it just incredibly disrespectful, but I think it's incredibly short-sighted, frankly. Um, You know, there's a lot of research out there that shows that um, you know communities, if they feel respected, if they feel represented in um, law enforcement and the like, that there is actual actually greater law-abidingness in those communities. So I can't really think of a greater way to really alienate. Communities of color to make them feel completely disconnected um, from any sort of representation in the district attorney's office, and to really delegitimate a lot of the sort of um, you know legal norms of behavior and the like that you would hope that um, should be understood between um, both contingencies there.
0: So, if a main prosecutor was listening to this podcast and they uh, were a prosecutor in a rural community, what is uh, something that they could do um, to improve that access to justice for their community members.
1: I really do think that they should, um, you know, cooperate with organizations like the ACLU. You know, the main ACLU is at sending out these surveys to try to figure out, okay, um, what can we do with regard to keeping track of things like drug policy, racial disparities, and the like. And I think even cooperating with organizations like that is really helpful and really shows um, different communities of color, different contingencies that, look, we care about these issues. We want to improve these. We want to look at different interventions. And at the very least, we want to track what's going on in our offices. Um, I think another really interesting improvement that um, you know, something that, you know, law schools could think about, um, in different respective states along with rural counties, even apart from Maine is, I'm um, trying to recruit more, um, young attorneys of color to come and work in offices. And that might be done with, you know, certain incentives, maybe their loan forgiveness program, loan forgiveness incentive programs, uh, perhaps their stipends that could be put in place. Um, but I think really increasing both, um, people of color and um, women's representation in these different um, smaller district attorney's offices is really important. And there are different ways that we can look at doing that.
0: Those are all great suggestions. So I thoroughly enjoyed this paper. I definitely look forward to reading further work from you in the future. So one last question, what are you working on now? So what I'm working on right now is looking at
1: um, specifically rural areas. Um, well, I'm, I, it's funny because I'm working at two papers in tandem. So I start <laughs> talking about the, them and they kind of like segue and like mush together um, into one giant paper, which I'm sure they will at some point. But right now what I'm looking at is also this sort of access to justice issue for rural people of color throughout the country. But also I'm looking at um, for higher part-time public defenders in the rural reaches of the country as well, oh, who get those jobs by way of um, submitting a, um, some sort of proposal to a request for a proposal that counties or cities might put out there. So I want to look at the sort of insidious um, personal and economic incentives that bear upon those um, defense counsel who are, you know, putting up, you know, these proposals for bid and everything to be public defenders in these small jurisdictions.
0: Oh, that sounds really interesting. Are you looking at that from a nationwide perspective or focusing on a state or a few states? Yeah.
1: So what's really hard is that sometimes the, these um, requests for proposals are kind of hard to find. Okay. So I might, you know, kind of do like a nationwide survey and like collect as many as I can and kind of look at the language and try to code for, you know, certain, sort of um, commonalities throughout those different um, RFPs
0: out there. So we'll see well, how that, that goes. That sounds really interesting. So I'm excited for that. So. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on to the program. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you and- so much for having me.
0: Hopefully we can come on again whenever you're done with your next project.
1: I'd love to. Thank you.
0: And thank you to you for listening to Off Our Next.